From Washington, D.C. and around the world, this is Government Matters with Francis Rose. Thanks for watching Government Matters, the only show covering the latest news, trends, and topics that matter to the business of government. I'm your host, Francis Rose. 88% of employees at the Office of Management and Budget are on the list to move to the Trump administration's new Schedule F. OMB Director Russ Vogt has included 425 employees at OMB in the new category, according to an internal memo Real Clear Politics obtained. Vogt's memo says Schedule F is, quote, another step to making Washington accountable to the American people. Five cloud computing providers are in on the Central Intelligence Agency's new commercial cloud enterprise contract. Amazon Web Services, Google, IBM, Microsoft, and Oracle, all one places on the contract. NextGov reports the companies will compete for task orders from all 17 agencies in the intelligence community. 40% of the political appointee jobs at the Defense Department are empty after the latest round of departures and firings there. A Defense News count finds 24 of the 60 jobs don't have confirmed appointees doing them. All but four of the jobs are in the office of the Secretary of Defense. The Pentagon hasn't gotten a clean audit yet in its third time through, but it has made improvements. The Pentagon's top financial leader, Thomas Harker, says DOD might not get a totally clean audit until 2027. Asif Khan's director of the Financial Management and Assurance Team at the Government Accountability Office, been tracking this issue for a long time. Asif, welcome, and it's great to continue our conversation on this. Uh, what's your takeaway from the results of the third audit at the Defense Department? First, uh, thank you, Francis. Great to be on the show. I think it's very important for people to realize that this is probably the largest audit in the world. Uh, DOD, DOD is a huge organization. Uh, the agency-wide audit comprises of 25 uh, standalone audits. Uh, the audit is overseen by the DOD Inspector General's office, and the individual component audits is performed by the CPA firm. This year, DOD did not receive an opinion. It was a disclaimer of opinion, just like it had been the prior three years. So it, the top-level results have not changed. Uh, the individual agencies received a disclaimer of opinion because the auditors were not able to get sufficient reliable evidence to base an opinion on. However, there were a few bright spots. There were six smaller components which were able to get an opinion this year and those were the agencies which did receive an opinion in fiscal year 19 and it's important to recognize because one cannot take an opinion for granted from one year to another year one of the numbers that uh, mr harker talked about well, on the release of this uh, of these results was the fact that the audit cost 203 million dollars i was not able to find the old numbers but i believe i recall that cost going down significantly, $700 million in identified savings or cost avoidance. Those numbers add up to you, no pun intended, Asif? Uh, yes. I mean, the audit costs have remained somewhat stable over the last three years, around $200 million. This is the audit fee. In addition to that, there's also cost involved in the remediation activities. So altogether, this comes up to around a billion dollars per year to be able to do that. Uh, we um, analyzed the numbers ourselves, the audit fee itself, and that was very much in line with the Fortune 1000 companies out in the private sector. So that wasn't something that was out of line the prior few years. Uh, another number that I thought was potentially troubling, maybe it's good news or bad news, I guess, depending how you look at it. 
Uh, Mr. Harker said uh, auditors were able to go to 600 locations last year to perform work. They were only able to go to about 100 this year to perform work as, because of COVID. Does, does that make much of a difference in the results that we see, whether auditors are actually able to be on site as opposed to having to work remotely? Right. I mean, there's only that much the auditors can do without being on site. Having said that, uh, the auditors were able to do a lot more work than would have expected, uh, despite the shutdown itself. So um, it made somewhat of a difference. Having said that, the overall top line result, um, you know, it's it's pretty much the same as it was last year. Where it may have impacted was the remediation activity. And that's something worth recognizing DOD for, that based on our work, DOD was able to remediate about 26% of the audit findings from the fiscal year 18 and fiscal year 19 audits. So that is quite an accomplishment. However, our understanding is this year that the work is still ongoing, that it may not be up to the same percentage as it was in the prior year. And that may be because of the COVID-19 pandemic. Could it also be because the department's just continuing to make progress and there are fewer things that they have to repair? Well, no. Uh, as the audits are going to continue, the number of findings is going to increase. Uh, like I'd mentioned, um, in April of 2019, there were about 2,400 findings and recommendations that the auditors had issued. That number has increased by several hundred dollars, several, several hundred. So there are over 3,000 findings and recommendations at this point. And that was to be expected. As these audits progress, more and more areas are going to come under the scope of the audits, and the findings are going to continue to increase. And that's a challenge that DOD is going to face, that they have to continue to be under audit and to show progress or substantial progress, they will have to remediate a large number of findings that are being reported by the auditors. All right, the big kahuna here is 2027. That made, everybody, uh, made everybody's uh, eyes bug out. Is that reasonable that it's going to take, uh, it will be a total by then of 10 years for the department to reach a clean audit opinion department-wide? It's worth remembering going back when DOD first started undergoing these audits uh, in 2018 that uh, under the secretary at that point in time, they were very clear that this is going to be a long-term endeavor. Uh, the main intention at this point in time is not to be able to obtain an opinion, but, the, but use these audits to receive actionable feedback. So DOD has been able to do that. They have been able to sustain this audit for three years. That is quite an accomplishment. Getting to an opinion is a long-term endeavor because some of these findings are going to require quite some time to be able to get down to the root cause that's what is causing them. Uh, admittedly, some of these findings can be rectified fairly quickly. The others where it involves a systems change, a process change, are going to require some further analysis and it's going to, re it's going to take years for them to get into place. Asif Khan, great insight as always. Thank you very much for joining me. Thank you, Francis. Great to be on the show. Up next, stopping Schedule F straight ahead on Government Matters. What can Congress do to stop the reshaping of the workforce all across government? You're watching WJLA 24-7 News.
Welcome back. 88% of the workforce at the Office of Management and Budget is on a list to convert from the civil service to the new Schedule F. President Trump's executive order says the government can fire Schedule F employees whenever it wants. Jessica Clement is staff vice president of policy and programs for the National Active and Retired Federal Employees Association. Jesse, welcome. It's good to see you again. I imagine there's a chill at OMB today after hearing this news. What's the implication for other agencies if almost everybody at OMB would move to Schedule F? That's an excellent question, Francis, and thank you so much for having me right after this news broke uh, yesterday. If you're at everyday agency, you're probably watching OMB for guidance, right? This is what that agency does. And if its workforce, 88% of it is subject to this um, executive order, I can only imagine the pressure that politicals are feeling at other agencies to make sure this broad category is enforced. The piece of this that I don't understand is my understanding of the civil service has always been that it was codified in law. And constitutionally, I'm not sure that I'm aware of any precedent where an executive order can completely alter something that's been decided legislatively and signed by the executive at the time that the law was passed. So I'm, I'm kind of mystified by this. That if the number was 20%, maybe I could understand you're gonna to try to nibble around the edges. 88% to me, quite frankly, is kind of mind blowing. Two pieces there, and I want to say up front that I am not a lawyer and have no legal authority to speak um, on this, but it is our understanding in speaking with lawyers that creating a new schedule like Schedule C, Schedule A, you know, this isn't the first new schedule um, for the civil service, that the Trump administration is within the law to do this through an executive order that these types of things are covered um, in regulations, not necessarily statute taking the omb piece of this if you look at the makeup of that agency you know a few hundred employees according to the real real clear politics article 425 of them subject to this executive order that is a policy making agency right it tells it advises the president um so i'm not terribly surprised but i did not expect it to be say 88 percent yeah, that, that number adds up to about 500 employees total, 425, I think it's like 483 is the exact number if you divide it out. But what does, and again, I guess I go back to my first uh, question, which is I imagine there are a lot of employees at other agencies that are going, wait a minute, I do the same kind of advice, the same kind of work that Jesse just talked about at my agency, is that gonna be me next? Absolutely. I mean, I have anecdotal evidence of what's going on on agencies. I haven't seen anything necessarily on paper, but I know people who have been told your position will be classified under Schedule F. Um, there is a lot of fear in the workforce. If you just taking OMB as an example, if all of those people are moved to Schedule F and it doesn't have to wait until January 19th, we're talking about this January 19th deadline as if it's like the start date. It's not, it's the end date. That's a deadline. If you take 400 plus people at OMB, move them to Schedule F, decide they are not doing their job and fire all of them, you have now just completely hamstrung the Biden administration, I'm sorry, the presumptive Biden administration from getting a budget to Congress in a 
timely manner. And even in an election year, in an inauguration year, that budget doesn't come early February the way it normally does. It's usually delayed. Now you're um, furthering that timetable. I appreciate your attention to detail, but I'm operating from this chair under the assumption that it's just a matter of timing when we acknowledge that uh, Joe Biden will be the next president of the United States, Jesse, but thank you for your care. Um, <laughs> and, you. and that's where I wanted to go next. What does the timing of this mean? And you've addressed it to some degree, but is there anything that members of Congress can do? I imagine there are some probably high-ranking Republican members in both chambers that don't like this idea very much at all. Oh, I wish that was the case, Francis, and perhaps I have not done my job in getting the point across as to how serious this is to this member, to, to members of Congress. Um, I think the OMB memo actually helps us in stressing the implications of this executive order. Um, Congress absolutely has the authority to stop this. There is legislation in both chambers that would do it. Looking at the Senate piece of legislation from Gary Peters of Michigan, the executive, the language in that bill would stop um, appropriated funds from implementing this order. It basically stops the executive order. Um, that is the language that uh, NARF is pushing to get into any the next appropriations package, whether that be an omnibus or a CR. That language is crucial. But that's a conversation that Congress is having now with a start date of December 12th at the earliest or at, you know, at the soonest. This is, if you look at um, the information coming from OMB, there is nothing stopping agencies from moving folks into Schedule F before December 11th and then firing them. What, what to do next then? We have less than a minute left, Jesse, but what are the options? It doesn't sound like the options are very good. I am not terribly optimistic, which is something I say on your show way too often, right? Um, but I think it is imperative that federal employees, contractors, um, I sent over the coalition letter that NARF signed along with a broad array of stakeholders. This isn't just limited to the federal workforce, um, the people who care about this. It is imperative that federal employees, federal contractors, any organization that has concerns with this executive order, that they take this to Congress and stress that we cannot just let this play out, let a Biden administration come in and then rescind the executive order. It is not that simple. Um, if people are moved into Schedule F and Biden rescinds the executive order, well, what do you do with all those people? Did they just lose their job? There's a whole host of implications on the back end. It is imperative that those of us who are working on this issue work to stop it before it even takes effect, before these 400 people at OMB are moved into this new category and potentially fired. Jessica Clement, thank you very much as always. Thank you, Francis. Have a happy Thanksgiving. Up next, cyber policy in the new Biden administration. Straight ahead on Government Matters, a new leader in the White House might be only the beginning. Don't forget, if you miss an episode of Government Matters, you can find it on our website, govmatters.tv. Be right back. Welcome back. The new Biden administration could make big changes to the nation's cyber policy. Some of those changes might be from the Cyber Solarium Commission's recommendations. Some of them might be changes Congress makes the new administration make. Eric Crucius is partner at Holland and Knight. Eric, thanks very much for coming on the program. For all the cyber issues that you and I have talked about over the last number of months and years now, I suppose, what do you think are some of the locks that will change that will impact contractors in the coming months and years? 
I mean, I think the biggest one is the uh, is the appointment of a national cyber director, which is something that the Democrats and Republicans in Congress have been pushing for. The only slight roadblock has been the administration, which has has not really seen that as a priority. But um, it sounds like a Biden administration does also see that as a priority. So I wouldn't be surprised if it makes its way into the current NDAA that's being negotiated and perhaps signed by President Trump. If not, I could see it as a standalone bill soon after uh, a president-elect Biden takes office. And, um, you know, that that will have a positive, potentially positive effect on the government. It will hopefully smooth out the differences throughout the government and cybersecurity policy also. Um, you're, you're seeing a situation where contractors um, really across different agencies have different cybersecurity requirements, and that makes things a little bit more difficult from a compliance standpoint. Point. And I think most contractors understand that cybersecurity is important, and they understand that, you know, there's a risk associated with cybersecurity and a lack thereof, and uh, they just kind of want to be told what to do. And having um, the same, essentially, cybersecurity requirements across all agencies will be very helpful. And as I alluded to at the beginning of our conversation, there are some things that the uh, new president could decide himself to do. I imagine he could appoint a cyber czar. I, it depends what you call it. But he could put someone in his own White House uh, to basically fill that job until Congress gives him the legislative authority, couldn't he? Absolutely. And I think that, that czar can really uh, impact regulations on government contractors. I think, you know, why we see such changes in the government contracting space from administration to administration is presidents realize they don't need Congress to do very much in order for changes to be effectuated onto government contractors because the president is in charge of that regulatory body that controls or regulates what contractors are able to do and not able to do. And cybersecurity is certainly one of those areas. So we could see changes without Congress acting at all. You and I have spoken on a number of occasions about the cybersecurity maturity model certification process at the Department of Defense. Uh, one of the things that I ask Katie Arrington on just about every time she's on the program is, what are you doing now to codify this, to build this into the process? Is, you, is it your sense that, that those efforts have been successful and that uh, the, the, the CMMC effort will continue into the new administration? My best guess is that um, CMMC will continue. Um, it may not be exactly the same, but I think it would be largely the same. We have a new reg CMMC regulation. We have a couple of other uh, regulations that are helping roll in CMMC while there's a five-year kind of rollout period. Um, you know, there have been some former Obama administration officials that have been critical of CMMC, but there hasn't been an alternative proposed that would do the job that they're looking to do. So until I see, or until the government contracting community sees something better um, from a meta standpoint, I don't think that we'll see CMMC go away. Like, like I said, there could be changes at the margins, but we've already had this, gone down this road pretty far. And that's not to say that you know anything can't be rescinded, right? Um, CMMC could be rescinded the first day that uh, President Biden takes office, but I, I see that as pretty unlikely at this point. And it seems to me the most significant factor there is the fact that it's now already written into a couple of the small business contract vehicles at the General Services Administration. Is that fair to say? Yes, and I think you'll see other civilian agencies kind of rolling this out. As long as they see a successful rollout by DOD, I think they're going to get on board because they see this as kind of the best thing that's out there uh, to protect uh, CUI and other information that the uh, contracting community has. What else is on your landscape cyber-wise, Eric? What should companies pay attention to if they want to continue to do business with the government and the new administration? I think one thing uh, that contractors um, kind of overlook with all with everything going on with CMMC and even the FAR clause 
is that the fact that agencies themselves have the power to kind of write their own cybersecurity clauses. So there, there are a, lot, a ton of agencies like the IRS, uh, DHS, that have their own specific cybersecurity clauses that have requirements on contractors. Uh, some One clause has a requirement that uh, a breach be um, told, told to the government within a, an hour of discovery, which is very difficult. So um, I think contractors should pay attention to those clauses, and I think we might see a proliferation of those, potentially in a, in a Biden administration that's looking to kind of shore up cybersecurity um, across the government. I think that's the major thing that contractors should look at. Is it possible that someone in the new administration could look across that landscape and say this is too much and it's unreasonable to ask these companies to do this and try to form at least one base policy from which agencies can work? I definitely think that's a possibility. Um, I mean, the whole idea of the FAR many years ago is to kind of smooth out government contracting across the government. And here we have, you know, uh, each agency has their own set of regulations now. And I think the same thing happened with cybersecurity policy where we had the FAR clause that was a baseline and then each agency saw that wasn't enough and now has instituted their own regulations to implement you know, stricter cybersecurity protocols. protocols. But I, I could very well see a, a kind of a Biden administration coming in, raising the bar in that FAR clause and then kind of wiping out those uh, specific um, uh, clauses across the different agencies you know, to the extent that that clause becomes more stringent than those agency clauses. Eric Crucius, thanks very much as always. Great to have you on the program. Thank you. I'm Sharice Hanner. Government Matters is always one click away whenever you want to get the latest in the business of government. Like us on Facebook, subscribe on YouTube, follow us on Twitter, and connect with us on LinkedIn. While you're on the go, tune into the Government Matters podcast on SoundCloud, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, and TuneIn. That's the latest from Washington. Join me weeknights at 8 and 11 on WJLA 24-7 News and Sunday mornings at 1030 on ABC 7 to stay plugged in on issues that matter to the business of government. Thanks for watching. I'm Francis Rose. Thanks for listening. Our daily program is produced by Sharice Hanner and Ashley Gallagher. Christy Marriott leads our technical crew. Our web editor is Beatrix Haddon. Government Matters was created by George Jackson. Visit govmatters.tv for articles, videos, and more, including our first feature-length documentary, The Dawn of Generation AI. Government Matters is recorded at WJLA-TV in Washington, D.C. Copyright Sinclair Broadcast Group.